0: 1 Kings chapter 17, we begin in verse 8. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath, And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, as the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but an handful of meal and a barrel and a little oil and a cruce. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not. Go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after it make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. And she and he and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not. Neither did the of oil fail. According to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I can call your attention in particular to the words of verse 9. This is the word that comes to Elijah Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Might seem a little strange that God would order his servant to go to the city of Zarephath. Why was it necessary for Elijah to have to go anywhere? Couldn't God have sustained him by that brook Cherith, where he directed him in the first place? We know, of course, from verse 7, that eventually that brook dried up. But couldn't God have supplied for that brook to have kept it from drying up? And why Zarephath? Some 70 miles, as I recall it, um, northwest of where Elijah was by that brook. Zarephath was a Gentile city in the land of Zidon. According to Arthur Pink, Zarephath in Zidon was the very place that the wicked queen Jezebel was from. A certain note of irony there, to be sure. How ironic that God would send his servant into the very place where this wicked queen was from. From a human perspective, I suppose it would stand to reason that Ahab would never think to look for him there. It would be sure madness for the prophet to go right into the territory of the woman who had put numbers of the Lord's prophets to death Interestingly enough, one of the reasons that God sent Elijah to Zarephath, you could argue, had nothing to do with Elijah at that time, but would have something to do with Christ during his earthly ministry. We read from Luke chapter 4 earlier in the service, in which God makes reference to Elijah going to Zarephath. So we read in Luke chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, Christ speaking, he says, But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heavens were shut uh, three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow." This word from Christ provoked the Jews to such anger that they sought to apprehend him and would have thrown him headlong over a cliff if they could. What was it about that event that so provoked their strife and their anger? Uh, to make them ready to kill him on the spot. Well, it was the fact that Christ was pointing out to them that God had passed over many widows in Israel when he sent Elijah to Zarephath. Christ was making a point about the sovereign prerogative of God to bless whom he would. And this struck at the arrogant pride of the Jews who were of the opinion that they alone were the chosen vessels when it came to the blessings of God. How dare you, you imposter, to suggest that in his sovereignty God would bless a Gentile widow or that God would heal a Syrian general, as Christ also makes reference to. Now I call your attention to Christ's reference to Elijah at Zarephath this morning to remind you that God's ways are high and above our ways and his thoughts are far above our thoughts. And there may be times in your lives when God's dealings with you serve a purpose that goes way beyond you, may have little to do with you even, and may not even have reference to that particular time. I often think of Job in that regard. Oh, the sufferings that Job went through. And I know when I've referenced Job, I've pointed out that especially when we are in times of trial and suffering, we have a tendency to become very self-centered. Why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this prolonged struggle and undergoing such trial and affliction? I don't see how any good can come out of it uh, for me. And in fact, the trial uh, may, in your mind, serve no more constructive a purpose, but instead just reveals uh, your fleshly corruption. That was the case with Job. And yet the very fact that God saw fit to Preserve that event and to write a book about Job, very likely authored by Job himself, it demonstrates that God's dealings with Job had more to do with those in ensuing generations that would read that book and draw from it such lessons as God would have for uh, all that read that book. So having said these things, I do want to direct your attention this morning to a number of things in the narrative about Elijah at Zarephath that can and do reach us today. The title of my message this morning is simply this, Lessons from Elijah at Zarephath. Lessons from Elijah at Zarephath. And the first lesson I would call to your mind is simply this. We need the word of the Lord again. We need the word of the Lord again. We saw in our initial study. Um, of Elijah, when I conducted something of a survey of Elijah's ministry, that his regular routine was to respond to the word of the Lord when that word came to him. So in verse 2 of this chapter, we read, and the word of the Lord Came unto him, saying, Get thee hence and turn thee eastward, etc., to the brook Cherith, where the Lord had commanded the ravens to bring food to him, and where he could utilize the resource of that brook. And even though it's not stated in verse 1, it's certainly implied based on his character that it would have been the word of the Lord that came to Elijah, directing him to go into the presence of Ahab to announce that there would be no rain. It would certainly have been a fool's errand, wouldn't it have been for him to have done that on his own initiative with no word from the Lord? And now we're told in verse 7, chapter 17, that it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And it's worth noting that as this brook dried up, we don't find Elijah becoming panic-stricken, do we? I imagine it would have been readily perceptible to him that the brook was drying up. We don't find him thinking that it was time for him now to take matters into his own hands and fend for himself by searching hither and yon for a new source of water because he could see the trajectory that the brook Cherith was on. We find the same thing in Elijah that we find in an earlier time of Israel's history when they journeyed through the wilderness. So we read in Numbers, chapter 9, and verse 21, And so it was, when the cloud abode from evening unto the morning, and that the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they journeyed. Whether it was by day or by night that the cloud was taken up, they journeyed. Or whether it were two days or a month or a year that the cloud tarried upon the tabernacle remaining thereon, the children of Israel abode in their tents and journeyed not." But when it was taken up, they journeyed. At the commandment of the Lord, they rested in the tents, and at the commandment of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And so has it ever been that the Lord directs his people and that they move by his command. In the case of the Israelites, as in the case of Elijah, it's not simply the circumstances of life that compel them to move. No, rather, it is the Lord himself. We have an instance in Old Testament history where an Old Testament family was governed by circumstances. In the book of Ruth, we have the account of Elimelech, leaving the promised land, going to Moab because of the circumstances. There was famine in the land at that time. And so the book of Ruth begins. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons... And in the verses that follow, you have the account of Elimelech dying, and then his two sons dying, leaving their wives with their mother-in-law, Naomi. Eventually, Naomi returns to the Promised Land, and when she arrives home, she insists that she not be called Naomi anymore, because Naomi means sweet or delight, she insisted instead that she be called Mara, which means bitter. So we read in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 20, and she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. You certainly have an example in that family of someone that was governed entirely by circumstances. Rather than by the Lord. So, can it often be the case that when the followers of the Lord find themselves driven by the circumstances of life, they begin a downward spiral from bad to worse or from full to empty, which in turn can lead to bitterness? This is why, as Christians, we need time with the Lord. We need time in his word. This is how he directs us. This is how he keeps us stable and secure, even though the circumstances of light may be swirling all around us in such ways that we're tempted to panic. Paul addresses this matter in Ephesians chapter 4. And he deals specifically with the word as it's taught and as it's preached. Listen to the words of Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11, where Paul writes, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sleight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him and in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Not only can Christians who neglect God's word be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but I think you could go a step further and say they can be tossed to and fro by every contrary circumstance of life until they end up as Naomi in the book of Ruth, bitter against God, bitter against the Lord's people, bitter basically toward everything. Oh, it's a terrible thing to run into a man or a woman who's been engulfed by bitterness. Paul warns of that in the epistle to the Hebrews where he speaks of the grace of God failing. He issues a warning about the grace of God failing. Lest ye be um, strangled, so to speak, I'm paraphrasing it now, with a root of bitterness that takes root in you and defiles you and troubles many. When a person becomes engulfed in bitterness, it's as if he can't even be reached with the grace of God. That is something we want to avoid At all costs, better by far to follow Elijah's example and find yourself moving or standing still by the Lord's will through his word and by his spirit. A.W. Pink points out that the Lord does see fit to test his followers, and there are times when those tests may seem to go from hot to hotter, so to speak, I'm reminded of the Emmaus Road disciples in Luke 24. So we read there in verse 31. This kind of ties into our Sunday school discussion this morning. Alan will see verse 31. And their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us? while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures. Oh, there's the kind of heart burning that we desire and that we need. And it is obvious how it comes as the word of the Lord is opened to us. And our hearts are open to that word. May it ever be our practice then to maintain the kind of spiritual sensitivity that's described in these verses by having the Spirit of God open the eyes of our hearts to the truth of God's word and leading us into constant fellowship with Christ. Then will we behold him, and then will we know his leading. So the word of the Lord came to Elijah again. Look at it again. uh, Verses 7 and 8. It came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land and the word of the Lord came unto him. Oh, may that word come to us repeatedly as we spend time in the word. In time in prayer, in communion with Christ. So the word came to Elijah. It directed him to go from the dried-up brook uh, to Zarephath in the land of Zidon. Consider with me then the next lesson from Elijah at Zarephath, which is this. The providence of God goes before us. The providence of God goes before us. Notice again the words of verse 9. Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there, Then underscore this next statement. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. God has commanded a widow woman in the city of Zarephath to sustain Elijah. Now, what do you suppose would have gone through Elijah's mind when he was told by the Lord that a widow woman in Zarephath would sustain him? I think I know what would go through most people's minds. You might envision some rich widow with a bountiful supply of food and water with enough to spare, in spite of the famine. Perhaps this widow would have had a husband that left her with great wealth so that she could afford to take in a guest even during a time of famine. Well, that certainly wouldn't turn out to be the case with Elijah, would it? Instead, he discovers upon his arrival at the gates of the city of Zarephath, a widow in poverty, gathering sticks for what she anticipates will be the last meal for her and her son. Oh, we have to pause and acknowledge, don't we, that the ways of the Lord are certainly not our ways. But note that the Lord's word to Elijah was that he had commanded this widow woman to sustain him. Now, we shouldn't interpret this text to mean that the Lord had spoken to this woman the way that he spoke to Elijah. She certainly didn't address him as if she had been expecting him because of a word that had come to her from the Lord. No, quite the opposite. She insists that she couldn't possibly be the means for sustaining anyone. She didn't have the means to support herself. So we read in verse 12, and she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruce. And behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. And this was the one who was going to sustain Elijah. Interesting to note here, isn't it, that in her insistence that there's nothing she can do for Elijah, she also makes reference to Jehovah and she makes reference to him being the living God. This is the same kind of oath that Elijah himself made when he appeared before Ahab and announced that there would be no rain. Could it be that Word had spread to the surrounding Gentile nations that this drought and this famine announced by a prophet of the Lord and that this widow had come to recognize that the Lord was indeed the true and living God and this drought and this famine was from the hand of God? Oh, there's nothing like extraordinary providences that lead people to recognize the hand of God. I'm still amazed at the scenes that occurred in many football stadiums when one of their own dropped to the ground after taking a hit that brought on him a cardiac arrest. Players and staff from both teams meeting in a circle on their knees, bowed in prayer that the Lord would spare the life of Darren Hamlin, the 24-year-old defensive back from the Buffalo Bills football team. Those scenes in those stadiums were not scenes that our national media was fond of showing to their viewing audiences. Some of you would know the name Tony Dungy. He used to coach the Indianapolis Colts, professes to be a Christian, uh, who is now a television analyst. He told the story on air of another instance where players and staff wanted to meet publicly out on the field for prayer. I don't know what the event was that brought that on. But Tony Dungy... Um, told this story, and I'm glad he told it on the air. He said that they were warned not to, and they were threatened with fines if they did. And prayer was suppressed. But now with a young man's life on the line, threats and fines had a hollow ring to them when it was recognized in the words of Psalm 68 and verse 20, He that is our God is the God of salvation, and unto God the Lord belong the issues from death. I don't know the spiritual condition of those athletes who gathered for prayer, but I do recognize this. They certainly knew who was in charge, didn't they? They certainly recognized that this matter was above them, that it was in the hands of God Almighty. So it is the Lord that upholds this world by the word of his power. I love the way this truth is communicated very vividly in the book of Jonah. The next time you read through that little book, take note of the things that it says the Lord sent and things that the Lord prepared. You'll discover that it was the Lord that sent a great wind into the sea, a storm that pursued Jonah. And it was the Lord that prepared a great fish to swallow the prophet. And it was the Lord that commanded that same fish to spit out the prophet, so to speak. And it was the Lord that prepared a gourd to shade Jonah from the heat of the day. And it was the Lord that prepared a worm to destroy that gourd. Oh, how we need the constant reminders that it is the Lord that controls everything. I love the answer to our shorter catechism question number seven. What are the decrees of God? The answer that the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And in answer to question 11, what are the works of God's providence? The answer God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. So when we read in 1 Kings 17 and verse 9, that God commanded a widow woman to sustain Elijah, we rightly interpret it uh, to mean that in his providential rule over all the circumstances of everything in the universe, he would direct by his decree and by his providence this widow woman to provide for Elijah's needs. Not that he had to say anything to her. This was all in his control. How we need to be ever mindful then that this same God that commanded this widow is the God we worship and serve through Jesus Christ. And Christ is the one who is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 1, where we read, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, he upholds all things by the word of his power. May our confidence in the God we worship and serve be strong then, as we affirm that the God who upholds all things by the word of his power, who can direct all things in his providential rule, can work all things together for good to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans eight twenty eight. That's really the essence of this lesson from Elijah at Zarephath when you read, I will command a widow woman there to sustain you. Well, let's shift our focus then for a moment to the widow herself. For we learn a very important lesson from her, which is simply this, and with this we conclude. It takes great faith to put others first. It takes great faith to put others first. The widow does this very thing. She leaves off gathering her sticks in order to fetch for Elijah a little water in a vessel at his request. That in itself is amazing when you consider that water was in short supply, There had been no rain for a lengthy period of time. And then Elijah makes another request in verse 11. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. The more I read this portion of the narrative, the more convinced I become that this widow in Zarephath did fear the Lord, and recognized him to be the true and living God. After she explains her plight to Elijah, he then gives her a word from the Lord. So we read in verse 13. And Elijah said unto her, Now keep in mind now, this is right after she had just said to Elijah, I, I don't have anything. I've gathered two sick, two sticks. I'm going to prepare the last meal for me and for my son. And then in verse 13, Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. Human nature being what it is, I'm inclined to think that there were probably as many phony prophets and preachers in ancient times as there are in our times today. The number of times Christians become hoodwinked by skilled and talented beggars that can very convincingly plead their causes goes beyond calculation. I find it to be heartbreaking at times when I receive calls or when someone comes to my door and they give me their heartrending story of a relative who's sick and dying and the need for funds. We've got to get down to Florida. I think of one instance in particular. The short little lady came into our church begging for money, my mom's in Florida, she's dying, I need a bus ticket, can you help me? And I think we did help her. And then, I don't know if it was six months even later, that this same lady came into our church with exactly the same story, pleading for money again. I remember saying to her, you need to expand your repertoire we've heard this story already. And part of the dilemma that we face as Christians and that we face at times even as a church is you don't want to be cold-hearted to someone who is genuinely in need. Uh, but neither do you want to be deceived by con artists, uh, 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 of which there are plenty. Joe Tom used to have an interesting approach. He would want to know two things from anybody who was soliciting us uh, to supply for physical needs. One, where's your family? And the two, where's your church? And I, I, this is how I explain it to people who come to me now. Uh, I I don't try to take issue with them over the validity of their story, uh, whether or not you're giving me a story or whether or not this is genuine. I've got to be honest with you and say to you, I don't know. I can't tell because I have had so many similar stories come my way. If you were in a church as a member in a church, your minister would know and the people around you would know. So it becomes very, very important for you that you be part of a church. And, uh, well, sometimes that discourages them to walk away. As often as not, they have excuses for everything. You know, I fell out with my church. They don't understand me. Uh, Neither does my family. And it makes it very difficult, okay? But, Um, all of this that I'm sharing with you now to raise a question. Why didn't this widow suppose that Elijah would be classified among the phony prophets? Yeah, here's somebody on my doorstep at the gate of the city wants me to take my meager substance and give it to him first. I just told him I have enough for me and for my son, and he wants some of that, and he wants it first. I'm inclined to think that the answer to that dilemma would be that the Lord did the same thing, perhaps in the heart of this widow, that he did to Lydia in the book of Acts. He opened her heart to the truth of Elijah's God. Think about it for a moment. Wouldn't you have to say that there's evidence of great grace in this widow's life? She's about to prepare her last meal for herself and her son. She has nothing to spare, and yet she tends to Elijah first. Unsaved people in dire straits do not generally, as a rule, behave like that. There's a sense in which you'd have to say of this widow that she was obeying a command that would come from Christ centuries later when Christ would say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 and verse 31, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. But your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That certainly proved to be the case for the widow of Zarephath, didn't it? She tended to the Lord's servant. She did this even before tending to her own and her son's desperate need. And as a result, she saw it come to pass what Elijah said to her would happen. So we read in verse 14, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days, and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. Now, I don't believe there was any time throughout those days, described in these verses, that the widow was given oil to spare and meal to stash away somewhere. I'm more inclined to think that each time she drew oil from that cruce and meal from that barrel, there was probably just enough for that day. It was certainly that way for the Israelites in the wilderness when manna was supplied to them. Each day they had a daily supply. I love the way this is described in Exodus 16 and verse 18, which speaks regarding manna. And when they did meet it with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. Isn't that a striking example of the Lord giving to each one his daily bread? And so does the Lord provide for his people today who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He may not give you a year's supply or a month's supply or a week's supply. We are taught to pray, aren't we? Give us this day our daily bread And I think that speaks with as much reference to our spiritual bread as it does the bread that we consume bodily. If the Lord were to give us this month, or if he were to teach us to pray, give us this month our monthly bread, or give us this year our yearly bread, then we might be tempted to say, well, this is good, Lord, if you will give me this month my monthly bread, then I won't have to pray again for a whole month. The Lord doesn't want that, does he? The Lord provides for his people not more than they need or less than they need, but exactly the right amount for what they need. But learn the lesson of the widow of Zarephath and see from this widow that the Lord's provision is in response to our faith. She had have the faith to heed the word of the Lord communicated by the prophet. So these are a, a few of the lessons from Elijah at Zarephath. We live by God's word as that word comes to us again. His providence goes before us and he meets us in our daily needs in response to a genuine faith that can put others first and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Oh, may the Lord stamp these lessons on all our hearts, and may we put these lessons into practice. Let's close then in prayer, and let's all pray. Oh, Lord, as we bow now in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee, for thy constant and gracious provision for thy people. We rejoice to know what this narrative reveals about our God, that he rules and reigns over everything, and he does work all things together for good to them who are his called, his chosen, the believing ones that believe in his Son. O Lord, may our confidence in thee never waver, but may it grow stronger with each passing day, especially when thou dost see fit to put us into the time of trial and testing. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.